This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action, with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Welcome to another episode of SaaS is Scaled. I'm pleased to have Greg Johnson with me, and he's CEO of Invoca. And uh, we will have a great story for you about the company and what they do. They have been extremely successful. Um, Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Hey, thank you, Armand. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, yourself, your organization, the way you guys came with the idea and, you know, you got here? Sure. Uh, so I have been at Invoca since 2016. Um, I'll separate myself from the company real quick. So I've spent almost all of my career in software, which is kind of ironic and funny because I thought I was going to go get a master's or a PhD in international relations and either uh, work for the state department or teach for the rest of my life. So the fact that I ended up in software was an inadvertent stroke of luck, I would say. But uh, once I got into it, I've loved software and have spent pretty much all of my, all of my career in software. Uh, Invoca was founded in late 2008. I joined the company in 2016. We were about a hundred employees about 15 million in ARR when I joined. And um, really where the company came from was focused on the different industries and specifically for marketers in industries where consumers are making very complicated, um, very challenging, very expensive buying decisions. So if you think about getting a mortgage for the very first time or you know taking a 25th anniversary safari to Africa or a cruise, and all in all these different industries, um, the the problem that we're helping solve is marketers spend tons of money on digital marketing, but ultimately they make their revenue and they acquire customers through their contact center or through conversations that people have with like a local insurance agent or uh, a local car dealership. And so we're really focused on connecting the dots between you know where these companies invest their marketing dollars to drive demand and where they actually make money and make revenue. Um, and then, um, I know that now you have a lot of new technologies, of course, when you started, uh, you know, when the company started back then, it was a different landscape from technology perspective. And then the company yeah. leveraged new technologies. And of course, based on what you saw in the market and what the software can do and adding value, when was the point that you saw really AI? is making a difference in what you do and you leveraged it in a, in a full extent the way you do today. 
Yeah, well, so it's 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 funny because you know certainly the awareness and the attention to artificial intelligence has just skyrocketed in the last six to nine months. And we've been in the AI business for quite some time. So let me wind you back all the way to um, a pivotal moment, moment for me personally, which is when I decided to join Invoca in late 2016. Um, so prior to coming in Invoca, I had worked in product roles at Salesforce for about a decade. So I was at Salesforce from 2007 to 2016. And I'd always worked on sort of new and emerging parts of Salesforce. I never worked on sales cloud. I never worked on service cloud, which are sort of the two core parts of the business. Um, and so I'd done a lot of work in the collaboration space. And then I did a lot of work as Salesforce got into the world of digital marketing as we bought a company named Exact Target uh, in 2013. Also, as we did some acquisitions in the social media marketing space. And one of the problems that I'd always worked on as a, as a product management uh, person at Salesforce was around how do you understand what I would call conversational data, um, which is this loose, unstructured set of information, whether it's through typing and text, um, or if you think about like Twitter or Slack, um, or if that comes through a live human to human conversation like you have in a contact center. And so when 2016 came around, um, I, had, I was thinking about like, what's my next step? Um, I, I frankly had reached the point where I'd been at Salesforce for a decade. I was ready to try something new. I wanted to try something a little bit more entrepreneurial because I'd worked at really small startups in the past. And I sort of stumbled upon Invoca and Invoca is really interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, Invoca sort of sits at the intersection of a couple of really interesting markets. Number one is digital marketing. So you think about like the world of Facebook and Google and Adobe. Uh, number two is the contact center. And certainly, I'll talk about it maybe a little bit later, but AI has dramatically impacted the contact center and how do you improve how contact center agents work over the past few years. Um, and the third area was really around what was kind of emerging is like the customer data platforms and CRM, things like that. And so Invoca sat at this really interesting intersection of these three big markets, but the company was also doing really interesting things around conversational data all the way back to 2014. And so, you know, we were, I can talk in a moment about why we did these things, but we were doing work around understanding human to human conversation in the contact center back in the day, like when almost nobody knew what an Alexa device was and people didn't understand the way that technology could help you analyze and understand these human to human conversations. And so for me, part of the reason that I joined Invoco was I was so excited about the potential around this conversational data and I stumbled upon and got really lucky in finding this company that had been doing some really interesting things with AI from the very, very early days. And so now when people like yourselves and companies ask us like, you know, what's it like to be focused on AI? It, it's interesting because we all thought that everybody sort of grasped and understood how AI could be used in these situations, you know, two, three, four years ago. And it's just reached like a whole nother level of awareness and interest uh, with everything that's going on with chat GPT and open AI over the past six months. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I do remember the very first time that I had the experience to speak with someone. And then at the end of the conversation, I didn't know, I really didn't know if it was a real person that I spoke with yeah. or it was machine. And I tried to ask yeah. one more question to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't. 
So I said goodbye. I didn't want to. But then I turned, you know, to my wife and said, I still don't know. I think it was machine, but I still don't know. And I asked that question that I thought that if his machine could not answer the question, but did a great job answering because it still can be machine. So that was five years ago. And honestly, as of today, probably there are tons of advanced advancements being made. I can imagine many of these can happen today that you talk to, you know, over the phone or you converse it, you know, you just start the text messages maybe, right? And then you don't know on the other side if it's a real person or not, but it does actually does work. Yeah. Yeah, we think about our vision of the company of what we're trying to do is we're trying to help big consumer brands use the best of digital and the human touch to help build those initial relationships with customers. And so, you know, I think about um, my favorite example that I think everybody uh, can relate to is you think about getting a mortgage, right? Like I, I remember getting a mortgage for the very first time back in probably 2005 or 2006 in San Francisco, you know, my wife and I, she's pregnant with our first child. We're looking at getting a house for the very first time. We're stretched about how much we can afford. And like, I'm a very quantitative person. I have an MBA. Uh, I, you know, I'm one of those people who likes tinkering around with Excel. And so I didn't need help sort of doing the math around what a mortgage would be like, but uh, I was anxious because this was the most important financial decision I was going to have ever made in my life. And, you know, my wife and I found a little condo that we loved in San Francisco that we really wanted to buy. And so the combination of, you know, being able to go on that mortgage provider site and tinker around with the mortgage calculator and figure out how far could we stretch ourselves and what's in our budget, but then also being able to have a conversation with uh, you know somebody from a, a mortgage broker and have them help us talk through the different options of what types of products we might get and help give us confidence that we were getting the right product for us, even though we'd done all the math. Like there's a very human element of that. And so the way that we think about our business and the companies that we're, we're trying to help is like, how do you bring the best of those two worlds together? And, and to your point, Armand, like the dividing line of what's human and what's digital is getting more and more subtle by the day, um, which is really interesting. And, and you think about, you know, what's the unique value added, um, you know, touch that the human brings into this into this buying process. So it's one of the things that we're always looking at with our customers is, hey, if somebody, you know, goes and looks for your product and service on Google and it starts doing some education research on the website, how do you take that transition from digital into the human touch realm and how can you do that in a smooth and elegant and seamless way, as opposed to this herky-jerky, I do a bunch of stuff on the website, and then I reach out to you and I start to ask a question. And it's basically like starting again at ground zero. And it's like starting all over again. Um, and you don't really recognize it as a consumer until you experience something that is smooth. And then it just feels like magic. And it feels amazing. And then how do you use AI to understand that human-to-human conversation and to make sure that sort of the company, the brand can remember and retain all that information about the consumer in the same way that like, if you and I are best friends and we have a 15, 20 minute conversation about something that's really important to me. And then I call you the next week and you act like you've never heard any of it. I'm like, I don't think you're my best friend. <laughs> and so we want, you know, we want conversations 
between consumers and brands to to be handled and to feel like it's like you're having a conversation with a friend and there's institutional memory and there's understanding of context and how can we do all those things to really make that make that pay out i know that you invoke has reached to a great milestone and you guys have passed 100 million and revenue so uh that's amazing that's i think something that any SaaS founder and any SaaS ceo and any SaaS you know person wants to really get to that point that's a fantastic milestone uh, we had a quick discussion before this recording and you mentioned that there are challenges all around the journey it doesn't matter if you're two people company or 10 yeah. people or 10 million yeah. <laughs> there are different challenges always all the time but uh and and uh, but but at the same time you know when you think through that process that you guys are growing and now you pass that great milestone what do you think you know happened that could not happen and helped you to get from for example 10 million to 100 million where where you know what were those kind of main elements that if they didn't exist it could not happen yeah i mean i think every company has their own journey every company has their own path um, i was saying before we started when i talked to really early stage ceos they will say to me like, wow, that's amazing. I can't imagine what it's like to be a company and CEO of a company that's hundred million in ARR. And my response is, wow, I can't believe like what it's like to be the CEO of a company that has 10 people. Like that's really hard. It's really, really hard. And I always sort of euphemistically say when I talk to those CEOs, like you're doing God's work. Like I have tremendous admiration for what startup CEOs do. Um, you know, I think, I think we, you know, generically speaking, there are a number of things that we have gone through that are pretty standard as, as you go from, uh, you know, 10 million to 100 million. I think one of the benefits for me, I joined the company when we were about 15 million in ARR. And one of the reasons that I joined is it's very clear that we had product market fit. We had customers who really loved what we did. And so the sort of the core elements of the the recipe, the ingredients of the recipe of something great were, were already there. And I was very, very fortunate to to go sort of build things on the back of uh, those who came before me at Invoca. Um, I think there are a couple of things that were really pivotal for us. Um, number one, um, being able to sort of identify what is a use case that's really working for you? And then how do you go replicate that at scale? Um, so we were going through a little of a bit of a transition as I joined the company where you were really seeing dollars in the world of marketing. And we sell to marketers, which a lot of people think they hear contact center and they think we sell to contact centers. Like, no, we sell to marketers. We sell to marketers who spend money on Google and Facebook and make money in the contact center. But in 2014, 15, 16, you're really seeing a shift in the world where marketers were spending more money on Google and Facebook and less money on print, TV, traditional media. And so for us um, to be able to lean into uh, the work that we could do, specifically helping a digital marketer quantify the impact they were having on the business, um, sort of aligned us with a broader tailwind that helped us in our business. Um, I would say it also helped align us with other relevant players in our space. We have a a very collaborative go-to-market relationship with Google um, because Google is interested in 
helping digital marketers understand the impact they're having on the business, even if it's not through e-commerce, even if they can't measure it on the website. So I think sort of aligning yourself to trends in the industry, but still in a way that's focused on customers and customer needs is really important. I think another one for us that was really interesting that we went through two or three years ago is a company is a lot of times as you go from 10 million to 100 million, you go from being a single product company to a multi-product company. And so for us, we made that transition um, where we had traditionally sold to marketers. We had built all this amazing AI technology to understand human to human conversation, but there was a very natural adjacency for us to look at, which is marketing ultimately in our customers drives these conversations that are happened in, in a contact center. And we have a bunch of data and conversational data that's really interesting for the people that are handling those calls. And so we built a product for them, but it was a natural adjacency if you think about it from a CEO point of view, but so many things change in your company when you go from being single product to multi-product. Like when you're single product, there's an incredible amount of alignment on like, you're just solving one problem, whether you're in product and engineering, whether you're in sales or customer success, whether you're in marketing, you're just focused on solving one problem. When you have two products, everything becomes a priority decision. How many developers do I put on product A? How many developers do I put on product B? How many sales reps do we have selling product A versus product B? Or if they're selling both, do I pay the same commission rate on both of them? And how do I make sure that the sellers in the organization are motivated to go sell the new product, which is a little bit harder than the product they've sold for the past three or four years? If you're in customer success, which product do you work on deploying and with whom out of the gate? If you're in marketing, which product do you market on the homepage? So it just introduces a level of structural complexity to the company that you don't have when you're a single product company, but that's a very natural evolution that you have to go through to be, you know, a best in class, world-class enterprise software company. And then I think the, the one for me that's really surprised me, I would say, is um, I love communications. I love to write. Uh, every single Friday, I write a note in Slack about what's going on at the company, what customers I've seen, which people I've talked to. Uh, that's something I enjoy doing. It's something that I saw really great leaders like Scott Dorsey, Exact Target do, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, very, very open in his communication style. So that's something that I enjoy doing. But I have been amazed as the company has continued to scale how many times you have to repeat things. And uh, I'm not a person that likes repetition. If my wife were here, she would tell you and we go out to dinner and she orders something that I'm thinking about ordering. I deliberately don't order what she ordered on the menu because I want some variety. I want to be able to try a little bit off her plate, try a bit off mine. So for me personally, like repeating the same thing over and over and over again is not how I personally would proceed. But I mean, even one adjustment, I'll give you an example that we made this year and we do our monthly all hands. You know, we really felt like our mission in the company as the company was not getting across and we haven't changed it. Like we've talked about it for three or four years. And someone on the exec team said, I really think we should start our all hands every single month with stating what is our mission and then using a customer example to illustrate that. And I was like, why didn't I think of that before? Because I've had so many people in the past few months come up to me and say, hey, the company mission resonates in a way with me that it didn't before. And I'm kind of like beating my head against the wall. I'm like, I've been talking about this for three years, but you just realize as company scale repetition and keeping things simple and keeping things customer focused is really, really important, but it's actually also hard. Um, and, and especially in today's world, we're now a fully remote company. Um, and so we don't have that benefit of water cooler talk 
or you know people being physically proximate with one another every single day. So I have to think a lot more about communications than I'd ever imagined when I first became a CEO in 2016. In a very big picture, um, how do you see sales organization will evolve? Will evolve when the companies go from that journey of 10, 20 million dollar ARR to 100, especially at this age that we are more you know, communicative based on everything that you guys are also doing. I know you guys are B2C, but in, it might be the same formula across the board. Um, and probably that's not the same sales style and sales organization and the sales processes and everything that, you know, can do the same thing when you are 10 million versus you are scaling to 100 million. Part of it, of course, you mentioned, you know, expanding for some companies, maybe across different products for some companies, is geographically expanding, maybe in different countries yeah. to get there. But in general, is there any, not just the expansion, but is there anything that changes the sales itself? Because- Yeah, I, mean, I, I, yeah, I think again, there are a, a number of fra- fairly broadly applicable things that happen. Um, certainly when you go from single product to multi-product, what, what really influences you in sales is if you go from one buyer persona to multiple buyer personas. So like, let me give you a very clear example with us because we did that. A lot of people, when they build their second product, it's actually the a second product that you're selling to the same buyer persona. So the, the go-to-market motion doesn't really change a whole lot versus like, you know, in our world, for example, we've always sold the marketers. Mm-hmm. We have hired people in sales that either have demonstrated past experience selling to marketing or demonstrate a fluency through the interview process of being able to sell to marketing. And the analogy I would use, like when you sell to marketing, you know, you've got to, you're, you're in a world where you're going out and hanging out with people uh, at an agency happy hour on a Friday night. Like it's a fun, creative crew. They're very social. Um, just the, the sort of psychographic of a marketer is one thing. And then you talk about a contact center, like a contact center traditionally has been more command and control very much kind of close monitoring of, you know, what an agent is doing. I would say for a lot of organizations, especially in enterprise where we tend to to focus, like the idea of creativity in the contact center is people are like, no, I don't want any creativity, like follow the script. That is your job. And so the, the type of persona that you need, the ability to context switch and, and be able to talk the language and build empathetic relationships with those buyers is very, very different. So I think, Thinking about, are you going to a new buyer persona and how do those buyer personas differ? Um, I think you look at things like partners, right? Like in our early days, we did a lot of our sales direct. As we've scaled, uh, we're doing more with partners like agencies or with technology firms or with uh, technology partners, companies like, you know, someone like an Adobe or in the contact center world, we have a partnership with five nine. And so you have to spend time building those relationships. Um but I think the most simple thing that's most universally applicable is you just always have to be watching the subtleties of what's working in the business. And you have to be able to pick out individual examples of what's going well, individual examples of what's not going well, and then see how quickly you can disseminate that knowledge across your entire go-to-market organization. And so for me, um, I'm very detail oriented as a person. Like I really liked, especially in customer facing things, like my general belief is the closer you are to the front lines of interactions with customers and the more that you bring 
the company close to that front line of interaction with customers, the more urgency and the more accountability people will have in solving this problem. So I really, I like spending time with customers and understanding what's happening in the front line, but seeing the things that are going well and going poorly. And then I think a lot now about information channels, like how do people in the organization other than me pattern match? Because if I'm the only one pattern matching across the whole company, like I'm, I, I work really hard, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So I'm going to miss something. And so now I spend a lot more time thinking about communication channels, engagement models, and I'm thinking about how do I build redundancy into the organization where there's somebody other than me seeing things that are happening that can identify where things are going well or poorly and course correct those at broader scale. And if I happen to identify some of those, great, but I'm trying to build a system that doesn't rely on me as an individual because the likelihood of that being successful is just not that high. And so I, I think, um, you know, thinking a lot about like we do a call uh, every Friday with our sales team called Sharing Success, where we talk about, you know, things that have worked, customer stories that have worked well, and areas where we've maybe, you know, bumped our nose against a wall. And and thinking about some of those disseminations, because especially in the early days, like when you're a one or $2 million company as a CEO or an executive team, like you're doing all the selling, you're doing all the customer success, like you're doing all those things. So you get used to, you're just doing it all yourself. Whereas you scale, you've got to think about not only how do you help the organization, but how do you help the organization help itself? And I think that's, it's just a different way of thinking. And, and is this also a little bit about decentralization versus centralization? So sometimes when yeah. the organization is smaller, it needs to be more centralized. And as you grow, if you cannot decentralize, probably you are limiting the scale of the organization. But I will say, I'll give you one example. This is one of my favorite examples is you get to be multi-product, you actually re-centralize again, or there are benefits to re-centralizing. So I saw this in my days at Salesforce because I was always working on new add-on products. And like, let me give you a very basic example. Let's say that you're a company that has a brand new product going to a brand new buyer. And you have, just to make the math easy, you have 25 reps and you're going to do 50 deals over the course of the year, win or lose. That means if you have all 25 of those reps working on all 50 of those deals, each rep is going to see two deals. The amount of pattern matching that they can do over two deals is virtually zero. And so what that means is their managers or their managers, managers, or I, as the CEO, I have to do all the pattern matching. And so one of the things that you see at larger Salesforce organizations, um, so you see happening is they will have specialized go-to-market teams. And for me, one of the biggest reasons is not only to bring expertise into the deal cycle to really understand and help the customer, but is also to pattern match. Because now imagine that I have two product specialists who sit in the sales organization and work on those 50 deals. Each of them sees 25 deals. When you see 25 data points, you can pattern match. So now we've taken the pattern matching from here all the way down to here. So I agree with you and your kind of business at scale and your core business, you want to start decentralizing things. But then as you add second products or new geographies, you may want to do a little bit of re-centralization. You learn what's working and not and what's not working. And then you think about scaling that and decentralizing it again. But you kind of go through this world of centralization to decentralization, back in little pockets of centralization. Then how do you decentralize it broadly? It's always like break gas, break gas when you're driving a car. 
Very good point. Very good point. And also, you the other point that you mentioned that is fantastic is not just adding products, but also adding persona. These are two different things. And if you're adding yeah. both, adding more products for more personas, that's where you see these big metrics popping up rather than just one thing that you were doing before, one product for one persona. Yeah, completely. And, they, and, and part of what I also think a lot about is where am I putting stress on the organization? Like, am I putting stress in the go-to-market part of the organization? Am I putting stress in the product and engineering part of the organization? When we built our second product, from an engineering point of view, it, I mean, it was work to do, but it was relatively straightforward because it was all leveraging our core technology. Um, it was a very natural extension. It was a much bigger change on the go-to-market side of things because talking to a whole new persona is a very different thing. So you're constantly thinking about where am I stressing the organization and can I, stress is a good thing, right? It's like when you're, when you're working out, like you have to tear down muscle to build muscle. So I'm always thinking about where am I stressing the organization and where can I, where can I decentralize that stress? Where can I balance risk across the company and being mindful of, as you add products, like how much of this is adding risk into the product and engineering part of the org versus how much of this is adding risk in the go-to-market org and balancing that, which you're essentially having as a company as you grow is you have a portfolio of risk. Uh, you're almost like an investment manager and you're making different bets and different things. And you're thinking about the relationships between those bets and the risk that you're taking. And how do you balance risk the same way that if you're an investment manager, you're thinking about, am I too concentrated in energy stocks? Do I need more healthcare? Do I need more financial services? It's sort of a similar mindset. Um, thank you very much, Greg, for the conversation. I'd like to ask you at the end about a book that you may recommend, one of the favorites that you have, um, if you could recommend to the audience, uh, something that may be about what you do or maybe something in general about business, yeah. about you know what has had a great impact in what you do. I'll tell you about two. One I'm just starting to read that I'm excited about and then one from my past. And I'm not a huge fan actually of business books. Like I work really hard and part of my reading is to, for me, is kind of an escape from work. So I'm 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 not like a bookshelf deep in you know in management management 101 and 102. Um, a new one I'm excited about that I just started. There's a woman named Claire Hughes Johnson, who is ex Google. She was a CEO at Stripe, uh, which is a fintech company that a lot of people know. Um, she just published a book that came out a couple of weeks ago, and it's really focused on uh, building a company. And her role at Stripe, working with the Collison brothers as COO, and she thought a lot about the people elements of building, the operational elements of building. And so it's, a, it's, it's kind of like an intellectual operational guide to how you go build a company. And I'm super excited to read that because I have a lot of respect for the work that she did and the way that she approached the problem. Um, now, most of, my, most of my spare time is spent uh, reading books. I'm a fan of history. Um, as I mentioned, I studied international relations when I was an undergrad and in graduate school. Uh, there's a great book called Team of Rivals that a historian named Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote. Uh, it's about Abraham Lincoln and the cabinet he assembled. And uh, for those who don't weave back into mid-19th century history very often, his cabinet was assembled of a lot of people that ran against him uh, to, to, to be the president. And so it's interesting because it gets a lot into the human elements of how do you create a team. And I think, you know, when you're scaling a business, I always say a technology business is about four things, your product, your brand, 
your people and your community. And at the end of the day, like that's what amazing software companies are. And so if you're building a great company, a huge amount of that is people and team and thinking about what motivates people and how you connect the dots. And so I just found that book to be really interesting because it was, you know, it's rare that you have an executive team uh, in, in a software company where everybody hated each other's guts six months before they worked with each other. Um, but Lincoln faced that. And so it's just interesting seeing the human element of how did he manage a world where uh, a lot of the people that he was trying to get to work together either didn't like each other or didn't like him um, before the whole process started. So I've always, I just found the, the human side of that really interesting. Thank you for, thank you so much, Greg. It was a great conversation uh, and it was very insightful. Um, definitely we will follow you on LinkedIn and when I post it on social media, I encourage everyone to comment and ask any questions that they might have. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very blessed in that, you know, my Salesforce community and my software community has always been very helpful for me as a first time CEO. And, and so anything I can do to share information and knowledge, I think it's one of the great things about the technology industry is so people are generally so open to sharing best practices and lessons learned and what have they done well and what have they done poorly. So enjoyed the conversation and always happy to do it. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.